Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, Chip, I love those guitar licks. Uh, really cool. I really like that. Uh, you know, worship is worship. It's not a concert for us. It is us giving real true worship to God. But I love it when we have really gifted, talented people like we have on our team who help in so many different ways. So it just kind of makes it a little bit more fun and stuff, and I appreciate that. So I uh, hope you're having a good week. Uh, I joked this week that I was going to start a new three-part series on hell called How to Beat the Heat. Uh, so if you're actually expecting that series to begin today, that's not what it's about. I apologize. I was just kind of messing around on, on uh, in my email blast. Anyway, uh, but let me give you three ways to beat the heat. Okay, three ways to beat the heat. Number one, number one, air conditioning. All right, praise God for air conditioning. Uh, how to beat the heat. Number two, ice cream. Uh, and so, kids, we love you guys. I have missed seeing you. I cannot tell you how much I've missed seeing the kids of our church. I, I really do. I mean, I have kind of been struggling with a little bit of low-grade depression. I mean, I, I'm not a real good, you know, Facebook pastor. I'm not a real good, like, email, phone call, text pastor. I, I love people. I love people. I love face-to-face interaction. And so, um, so you know, please come by uh, for the ice cream, your little gifts, and to say hi to Pastor Gary. All right? Uh, we love you guys. And, uh, and if you want to come and you want to do a tailgate party, I will sit in 111-degree heat with you outside. I will do that. And uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, so the best way to beat the heat is air conditioning. Secondly is ice cream. But the number three and actually the best way to beat the heat, the only way to beat the heat of hell is Jesus. All right. So there, there is my entire series, that three-part series on how to beat the heat. Uh, we have been, we started a brand new series last week uh, about, um, about reading the Bible. Reading the Bible for transformation. Uh, I really believe that God is wanting to do a work in my life. I believe this. I really do. I, I think God doesn't want me to just kind of sit plateaued right here between now and, and when I'm pushing daisies. I, I mean, I, I really think that God wants me every day to be growing and becoming more like Jesus. And, and there's a lot of things that go into that. And one of those is real fellowship with real people. There's no transformation without connection, okay? There's no transformation without connection. Uh, the person who thinks, oh, you know, all I need is my Bible and me, uh, you know, yeah, you need the Bible. You may need a little less of me and a little bit more of we, uh, you know, so I, I'm going to say there's no transformation without connection, so you need that. So by talking about this, uh, reading the Bible for transformation, we're not trying to say that connection isn't important. We're not trying to say that the Holy Spirit isn't important. Because I believe it's the Holy Spirit. The Word of God came to us through the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I think it's the Holy Spirit who gives us insight and applies the Word of God to us. Uh, he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we need the Holy Spirit as well. But we are looking particularly about how to read the Bible. Because what I found is in the modern world, a lot of us really don't know how to read, even though we, quote, unquote, know how to read. Most of us know how to skim. That's what we know how to do. We know how to skim. But in terms of reading, 
with real reflection and reading for transformation, I think that's something, it's a skill that has to be learned. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So these are a little bit less like sermons and a little bit more like if I were a Bible college professor, this would be how I would be teaching students how to really dig into the Word. But to dig into the Word, we need to have some really important attitudes about how we come to the Word. We talked about this a little bit last week. So uh, on my neck here, you'll see that I'm, I, I've got a compass. i got a compass. This was one of my birthday presents on Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday was my birthday. I turned 61, and uh, and I'm looking forward to however many years God gives me. And uh, so I went out, went for a bike ride, had a lot of fun. Caleb came home from SAC, and so we had a family dinner together, opened some presents. But one of the presents my wife gave me was this, and it's a compass. And she gave this to me because the compass for me is symbolic. It's symbolic. I need something in my life that always points true north. And I talked about this a little bit last week. And so true north according to my trusty compass, is right there, okay, right at that pole. So if you're ever looking for true north wherever you live, look at the pole. Just kidding. Um, But it is, uh, you know, we need a compass to help us discern where true north is. And I believe in all matters of uh, the life, of life, the spirit, faith, we need a compass that points true north. Now, some people don't believe in the Bible. I'm not here to try to convince you that the Bible is true. Uh, I hope that I can, but that's not really my uh, what, what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to. I will share with you why I believe it's true, and hopefully that's helpful for you. But but what we have in the Bible, or what I have in the Bible, and, and I believe what we can have in the Bible is we have something that points us true north in all matters of life and faith. And so last week we said the first way to think about the Bible is how does the Bible present itself to us? And the Bible presents itself to us as the inspired word of God, the inspired word of God, the inspired unfailing word of God. Because God's word never fails. God's word never fails. Never when God says, let there be light, there is light, okay? And when God is wanting to speak into your life, God's word has never failed in my life. Now, I've failed many times. I have failed many times. I've read the Bible without leading the, letting the Bible read me. And sometimes I have failed uh, in my understanding and my application of the word of God, but it's never because God's word has failed. It's because I have failed, and that's why I need a Savior. That's why I need Jesus. And so last week we said that, that the Bible is our spiritual compass, that it is the inspired, unfailing word of God that is the first and final word in all matters of life and faith. And if you need to review that message, it's online. You can watch it on Facebook. You can watch it on YouTube. uh, But it's there available for you. Uh, This week, what we want to look at and what we want to talk about is uh, reading the Bible, uh, uh, seeing the the Bible as a book uh, of revelation, Okay, It's a book of revelation, God revealing himself to us, but it's also a book of redemption or salvation. And so we're going to kind of dig into this a little bit. Now, um, anybody like really, really good movies? Thousands of you out there. Okay, okay, two, two of you. Three, three. Thanks, Jeremiah. 
Okay, four. There's four of us who love good movies, all right? The rest of us love bad movies, all right? So, so, uh, but I love a good story. I really do. I really do. I'm not one of those really smart, uh, uh, super brilliant people who like read Shakespeare, stuff like that. That's not me. That's C.S. Lewis, who's dead now, okay? That's probably why he's dead. He was reading, no, just kidding. He's dead because he lived a long time ago. But C.S. Lewis is one of those really smart guys who like to read Shakespeare. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But let me talk to you about me, okay? Uh, let me talk to you about my perspective on this, and then I'll talk to you about C.S. Lewis's perspective. Because he brings a very insightful thought that I think is, like, super cool. But uh, for me, I really like good movies, good stories. And one of my favorite storytellers is Tom Clancy. I don't know if any of y'all have ever read a Tom Clancy novel. Let me tell you, when you read a Tom Clancy novel, just be, be ready to be there for about a month. I mean, they're like, you know, super thick, you know. And, uh, but he always um, researches his stuff really, really well. And that's part of, and he has an attention to detail, but he just, he's great at character development. He's great at creating a plot in uh, a sense of conflict that really grabs you into the story. And so I love Clancy's uh, writings, but I kind of like watching the movies more than reading the books because I get, I get bogged down sometimes in the books. And so like one of my favorite movies is The Hunt for Red October. You know, The Hunt for Red October, I don't know if any of you have seen it. I read the book, but the hunt for Red October, there is clear and present danger. There, Patriot Games, Air Force One. Recently, Amazon started producing uh, Jack Ryan as kind of like a online TV show, um, and in uh, but that's not actually written by Tom Clancy. But but with with Clancy, I love the way he tells a story. Now, this is what I want you to imagine. So let's let's take, for example, The Hunt for Red October. We'll use that one uh, because I watched that. Joy and I watched that when we were on our honeymoon uh, years ago. And, uh, and, and every once in a while, I'll see it on TV, and I, I've just got to stop and watch it. I, I just, uh, I really love it. But two of the main characters are a guy named Jack Ryan, which, by the way, when Clancy writes a book, the hero, the protagonist, is always named Jack Ryan. Okay, so his protagonist in the book, the main character, Jack Ryan, the other main character in the Hunt for Red October is uh, is Marco Ramius. So Jack Ryan, played by Alec Baldwin in all the other movies, it's uh, Harrison Ford. But um, but so you've got uh, Jack Ryan. The other is Marco Ramius, played by Sean Connery, who is this captain on a nuclear submarine that's an attack sub called. The, the Red October. And so it is a great story. If you've never watched it, watch it today. Okay? That's your homework from the sermon. Watch Hunt for Red October. So uh, in the book that, or in the movie, think about it this way. Is there any way that the character Jack Ryan can know Tom Clancy? Is there any way that Jack Ryan as this character in The Hunt for Red October or in any of these other books or movies, can they know Tom Clancy the way we could know Tom Clancy? And the answer to that is the only way that Jack Ryan would ever be able to know Tom Clancy is if Tom Clancy wrote his person into the story of Jack Ryan. Okay? The only way 
that Jack Ryan and Tom Clancy can make a connection is not by Jack Ryan coming out of the movie or coming out of the book and interacting with Tom Clancy. The only way it could happen is if Tom Clancy actually wrote himself into the book with the character Jack Ryan. Does that make sense? So, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the really smart guy, he enjoys reading Shakespeare, which to me says he's boring, okay? So, just kidding, okay? So, C.S. Lewis liked to read Shakespeare. He was, after all, a professor of literature, all right? So, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, before he converted, he was an atheist. He was an atheist in his early life, and before... C.S. Lewis converted from atheism to Christianity. He he speculated, contemplated, postulated that if there was a God, there was a God, you know, because he was an atheist. And so he 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 just kind of postulated if there is a God, there's no way uh, I could ever come to know God. Uh, any more than, uh, let's say, Hamlet in the, the play Hamlet. Um, there's no way that Hamlet could come to know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote his character as Shakespeare into the story of Hamlet. Okay? So he felt like, as an, uh, he believed the only way, the only way, if there was a God, the only way that you or I or any other human being could come to know God would be if if God were to write himself into our story. It's really interesting is, is after C.S. Lewis, after C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he kind of revisited that whole idea. And his conclusion was that, that, um, that he concluded that God had, in fact, written himself into our story by revealing himself to us through the birth of Jesus. Very, very profound thought. I, at least I think so. And, and in the same way, God has revealed himself to us. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God reveals himself to us in a number of ways. We're going to dig into some scripture here in just a moment, okay? But God reveals himself into, uh, uh, in, to us in a number of ways. So one way that God reveals himself to us is through what some people would call general revelation, okay? Uh, and general revelation is this. Okay, Uh, think of it this way. All of creation declares that there's a creator. The the question of why is there something instead of nothing? I mean, I look around me. uh, Let's take we live in Fairfield. Uh, A lot of us live in Fairfield or around Fairfield. We live close to Travis Air Force Base, the largest air mobility wing that the United States Air Force has. We have a number of different. Uh, uh, planes on our base here, and one of those is a C-17 Globemaster. It is a massive, massive piece of equipment. Uh, It costs about 200 to 220 million to build one, and they're pretty sophisticated. They're a lot more sophisticated than my Isuzu Rodeo, okay? Uh, They're a lot more sophisticated than my first car, 1972 Volkswagen Bug. There, it's pretty. It's a pretty sophisticated piece of equipment. Now, if I go over to the base, and I've been there a few times, if I go over to the base, I don't look out on the base, and I don't look at a C-17 and saying, "Wow, gee, um, 
you know, how did that C-17 get to be? How did it come into being? Did a uh, tornado blow through the little pick-and-pull yard next to the air base, and it, it just took some random pieces of metal and threw it all together and created a C-17 Globemaster? And all of us would say, that is crazy. And to me, I look and I think, the reason there's something instead of nothing, the reason there is a creation is because there's a creator. That all throughout creation, we can see evidence of incredible design, which tells me there is a designer. A DNA molecule, and I know nothing about this, and Rich Friedrich is in the back, and he's a doctor, and I know he knows a lot more about this than I do. But my understanding is that that a DNA molecule is pretty sophisticated, all right? Uh, that's Arkansas speak for I don't really know what I'm talking about, okay? So it's pretty sophisticated. And um, But to say the DNA molecule came into existence by accident is a little bit like saying that a tornado blew through a junkyard and created a C-17 Globemaster. It just doesn't happen that way. There is a design. And where there is a design, there is a designer. So all of creation, and not all people, will agree with that, but I think most people are kind of like, even if they don't believe in Jesus, even if they don't believe in the Bible, they're like, yeah, I mean, it just kind of makes sense that there's a God. So God has revealed himself to us in some measure through creation, but God has also revealed himself to us through his word, the Bible, and God has revealed himself ultimately to us through the person of Jesus. So let me read for you Three texts of Scripture, come back, try to develop these a little bit, and then I want to tell you uh, a little bit about why I am just overwhelmed by my reading of the Bible all the time. Okay? And in the first Scripture I want to read with you, and if you can only open your Bible to one text of Scripture, maybe open it up to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So if you can only open your Bible to one verse, open to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. But I also want to share with you two other passages as well. John 1, 17 through 18, and uh, Luke 24, 25 through 27. So I'm going to read for you three kind of random texts from Scripture, and then I want to talk with you just kind of some, some general ideas from this, if I can, please. So the first text I want to read for you comes from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, and I'm reading this from the New American Standard Bible. John chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. And in, in, in John, remember, John was one of the original followers of Jesus. And John writes, and he writes to people uh, about why we can believe in something instead of nothing. And why we can believe in Jesus uh, more uh, than others as the Son of God. And so what, what, what John writes is this. He says, for the law, you know what the law is? The law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were all written by Moses. And when you're speaking to a group of Jews and you say the law, for you it represents not just those first five books, but it represents everything that comes after as well. But what what what... What John writes, he says this, for the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses. Now, 1,400 years before this event, before the writing of the Gospel of John uh, by John, about 1,400, maybe 1,500 years before this, Moses had written, he had written those first five books of the Old Testament. 
about 1400 years before. And before he wrote, before he wrote the law, what God did is he revealed himself to the nation of Israel through signs and wonders. They were incredible. They were overwhelming. And what God did is he brought these judgments on the nation of Egypt because of how they cruelly oppressed the nation of Israel. And he delivered them out of Egypt through signs and wonders. And so there was revelation of God in the signs and wonders. But there was also revelation from God through Moses to the people in the law. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law, which is really, really good. It is God's revelation of himself to the people of Israel. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized, made real for real people like you and me. Uh, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, God the Father, at any time. But the only begotten God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him, has made him known. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, now reading from the NIV. The writer of Hebrews says this. He's writing to, guess what? Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews, all right? Uh, He's writing to ancient Jews scattered around the ancient world uh, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, you know, the people of Israel. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, more recently, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He revealed himself in former days through the prophets. Now he's revealing himself to us through uh, his son. In last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the heir of all things. That only makes sense. Because through him, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, made the universe. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the maker of all things. And and the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. You ever look at the sun and all of its glory? Don't do it. You'll go blind. All right? God is glorious. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the sun, is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being, God's being. Now, there's some people who think that when we call Jesus the Son of God, that makes him somehow inferior to God the Father. But I guarantee you, my son is not inferior to me in any way. Especially in intelligence and athleticism and pretty much everything else. All right? When we say that he's my son, we're not saying that he's less than me. Uh, but we, in, in the same way, uh, it's funny, is my kids will look, recently my daughters were looking at some old pictures of me, and they looked at the pictures and they said, ah, looks like Caleb. 
And I'm like, no, he looks like me. I'm the dad, all right? But uh, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He is in no way inferior to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, finally, the last text I want to read for you is this. is Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. Let me give you the context real quick. Let me set the stage for you here. Uh, Luke 24, uh, Jesus has died. He has been beaten to a bloody pulp. He has been nailed to this, uh, this, this cross, this horrific place of suffering and the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the consuming, the, 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 um, just we need to understand that God's wrath is nothing like my wrath. See, God's wrath is holy because God is holy. My wrath tends to be unholy because I tend to be unholy. But we see at the cross the holiness of God. We see on the cross the, the wrath of God. And we see on the cross the grace of God. Jesus goes to the cross He endures the wrath of God. The wrath of God is poured out on him so that grace and mercy can be poured out on you and me. And on the third day, Jesus rises again. And he begins a series of revealing himself to his early followers. And in in Luke 24, Jesus reveals himself to two of his disciples. uh, But they don't yet recognize him to be the resurrected Lord. And so he's walking along with them and speaking to them about what has happened, the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's just kind of sat back and listened to them tell the story. And finally, Jesus says to these two disciples, he says to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things during the wrath of God? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I'm sorry. I completely lost my place. I forgot to use our video today. <laughs> We're not going to use the video. Uh, I messed up. There was four videos I wanted to show you guys. Not, not all four today, but I wanted to show you one today and the other three the next three weeks. We'll do it another time. Um, let me just roll through this message with you. Can I do this, please? So three things, three things we need to understand here. And recognize we're trying to focus on the Word of God, but I am going to be speaking about the Word of God, the Bible, but also the Word of God, the the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? God has revealed himself to us through the Scriptures. Now, some of you, you accept this as a matter of fact. Yeah. You know, God is... Has, has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. And you may feel like, hey, you know, tell me something, share with me something I've never heard before. I already know all this, all right? Um, so you might feel like it's unnecessary to even say this or talk about it. But the fact is that this is something that we need to be consciously aware of every time 
we open our Bible. See, every time I open my Bible, there's some people who read their Bible like magic. Okay? And when I'm saying they read their Bible like magic, what I mean is they're reading it with, uh, in a way that is really unhealthy and is really unholy. They read it like magic. Like, they read it like, well, you know, you read a chapter a day, keeps the devil away. And they'll read it, but after they read it, they don't have a clue what they read. It's like water off a duck's back. It, it just doesn't penetrate the feathers. It, it just doesn't. It, it, it's like the seed that's thrown along a path, and the Satan comes along and eats the seed. And it never takes root in their lives. It makes a difference. That, that when I open my Bible, I need to open it understanding that today as I read, in this moment as I read, God is trying to do something in my life. God is trying to speak to me. God is trying to speak to me. Oh, so interesting. I read this this morning. Uh, in some little notes in a Bible that I have. But it talks about, have you ever tried to talk to a brick wall before? Have you ever done that? No? No? You never tried to talk to a brick wall? Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to have a conversation, a real conversation, you know, give and take conversation with an answer machine? Have you ever asked it a question hoping that it was going to respond to you? Okay? Or, or have you ever had a conversation with a corpse? You ever sit down with a corpse and try to have a conversation? And what you're going to find is that if you have a, try to have a conversation with a brick wall, an answer machine, or a corpse, it's going to be a one-sided conversation. Meaning you're going to do a lot of talking, but you're not going to get anything back. And sometimes this is the way people read their Bibles. They're reading it like a brick wall. God is speaking, but it's not penetrating. They're reading the Bible like an answer machine. They're, they're recording, but nothing is really, you know, there's no impact here, little impact here. Or, or some people, they read the Bible like a corpse. God is speaking, but it's like they're dead to what God is saying. And what we have to do is we have to understand when we open this Bible. See, this is why I'm talking to you about attitudes last week and this week. Because if I come to the Word of God with the wrong attitude, I'm treating it like magic. Oh, I read my Bible today, therefore I'm good with God. Oh my goodness. I have been reading through the Scriptures. I have been reading through the Scriptures. And I have been reading like in Deuteronomy chapter 29 where it talks about people... It's like they don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. Their heart is calloused. And then I read the exact same text again hundreds of years later in, in places like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And I read it again coming from the very lips of Jesus. You see, when I open my Bible, and when you open your Bible, God is wanting to reveal himself to you. That God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. Um, 
you know, the, the way the writer of Hebrews says it is like this. In the past, God spoke to us, to, to our ancestors, through the prophets at many times in various places. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we looked at last week, says all scripture is inspired by God. That God is trying to reveal himself to us. So God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. Number two, second thing I want you to see in this is this, is that God has revealed himself uh, to us through the Son. Very interesting. If you go back to John chapter 1, where I was reading earlier today, the scripture says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the Word of God, the scriptures, and we have the Word of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has revealed himself to us through the Son. Again, Hebrews chapter 1. The Bible says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, through the scriptures. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. By his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Oh. So God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself to us uh, through the scriptures and through his son. At the beginning of this, I said today, that the Bible is a book of revelation and a book of redemption. Third thing I want you to see is this, is the saving work of Jesus is at the heart of what the Bible is about. It is the hinge on which the whole door turns. Everything revolves around this one thing, the saving work of Jesus. Now, how can I say that? In Luke chapter 24, Jesus speaking with his disciples who were foolish and slow to believe. By the way, you know who that describes? Yeah, me too, Gina. Me too. Describes me. He speaks to him. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? Beginning with Moses. Look at this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them what was said in some of the scriptures. Is that what it says? What's it say in the Bible? What's it say? What's it say up there? He explained to them what was said in most of the scriptures? No. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, all of this is ultimately about Jesus. Now, the Bible talks to us about more than Jesus, but Jesus is the middle. He is the, the center point of all that the Bible is about. That Jesus presented himself to the disciples as the centerpiece around which the Scriptures revolve. Every part of the Scripture is either preparing, preparing us for or pointing us to, to the coming of Christ. Everything. So what does this mean for us with regards to reading the Bible for transformation? And, and, um, and so this is where the message gets a little crazy. And Matt's like, no, this is where the message is over because you're going over time. 
So, uh, but let me just share with you something crazy, okay? This is me. This is my craziness. You know, I have been reading, sometimes well, sometimes not. But I have been reading, I have been studying, I have been reflecting on this book for about 45 years. I honestly don't know how many times I've read the Bible. You know, I'll hear someone tell me some, you know, I've read the Bible a hundred times. Well, I, I know I haven't read it a hundred times, okay? But I've read it more than a couple, all right? How many times I've read it really doesn't matter. But I will tell you, I have spent hours every day for 45 years studying the Word of God. I spend hours every day in the Word of God, okay? I'm not trying to boast. It's just, you know, this is a very important part of what I'm about. And there's no way I can stand up on Sundays and preach to you guys without being in the Word. I just can't. And, and more importantly, the Word being in me, and, and which is even harder. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, I've said that the Bible is my compass, my compass, that points me true north in all matters of life and faith. Why do I accept the Bible as my compass? This is what I want you to consider. The Bible was written over a time frame of roughly 1,500 years. 1,500 years. The Bible was written over a time frame of 1,500 years. I don't know about you, but that's a long time. Okay? I mean, that's a long... 1,500 years is a, a long time for me. It was written by... Over a time frame of 1,500 years, and it was written by 40 different authors. It was, uh, it's, it's a collection of uh, 66 different books, 66 different books written over a time frame of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents and in three different languages. Now, I want you to take any other collection of books, 66 books written by 40 different authors coming from very diverse walks of life over a time frame of 1,500 years. What's the likelihood that you will see one overarching story in that collection. My guess is you'll just see a lot of random thoughts by a lot of random people. Okay? Each work may make sense in itself, but I doubt if you're going to see all of them making sense together. Now, if all of them were written by one person, he would be very old because he'd be 1,500 years old. Yeah. <laughs> But, it, you know, maybe you might think, well, his 66 books, all having one major theme, might make sense. But what is the theme around which the Bible is written? You see, when God, when God creates uh, and when God uh, speaks to us, it's very fascinating. In, in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the story, I'm going to go through about, you know, 1,200 chapters a scripture with you right now, real fast. God creates all things good. When you read through Genesis 1, it says, God said, and there was, God saw, and it was good. You know how many times it says that? Six times. And then finally, it says it a seventh time, but it says, and God saw, it was very good. Okay, you got this? 
God created all things. Everything was good. And when God creates man and woman, male and female, in his image, male and female, he calls it very good. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 gives us the, the uh, panorama view of creation. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, it's when you're watching a movie and you see this big panorama, but then it, 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 it kind of focuses in on a single person. That's kind of what happens in Genesis 2. It goes from the panoramic shot to the close-up of the man in the garden alone. And God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Meaning that she is the ideal complement to his masculinity and her femininity. Male and female, God created us in his image. What God calls very good. But you and I know that very good isn't always descriptive of the man and woman. You ever have an argument with your husband or your wife? No. Me neither, Chip. So, very good isn't always descriptive of my marriage. I love my wife. She loves me. Uh, sometimes I would say pretty good. Uh, I'd say very good at times, but sometimes just okay, because we're not on speaking terms temporarily. But, but you know, but, you know, if I look at my world, I have to be honest and say, hey, you know what? It's not good. It's not good. COVID-19, not good. Social isolation, not good. A lot of not good in our world today. A lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment. Uh, a lot of things like cancer. A lot of things like waiting for a test to come back to let us know if it's good or if it's not good. A lot of not good in our world. Genesis chapter 3 tells us how not good came into being. See, what happens is the serpent, speaking to the woman, says to her, did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? And she responds, well, God told us not to eat from the tree that's in the center of the garden, because if we eat of it or touch it, we will die. And what does the serpent say to the woman? Oh, you won't die. You're not really going to die. You're going to become like God, knowing good and evil. Very interesting. You know how it says God saw and it was good? God saw and it was good. God saw and it was good. And then God saw and it was very good. Very interesting. Because in Genesis 3, this is what the Bible says. The woman saw that the fruit was good. See, that's the essence of sin. Seeing something and calling something good that God calls otherwise. Oh, we do this all the time in our world today. We do it all the time in so many ways. Um, Okay. Not good enters the world. Sin, suffering, death enters the world. But it's very interesting. What happens in... What happens in, in... Revelation 21 and 22, is that everything is restored to its original goodness. All right. 
I, I, I didn't give myself enough time to do this, and I apologize. And I got to land this thing, so without crashing, hopefully. Uh, but uh, what happens is in Genesis chapter three, verses fourteen and fifteen, the Bible says this. It says, you know, after the woman eats the fruit, God confronts the serpent. God confronts the serpent, and He says, "Bad serpent." Okay, very bad. Uh, in Genesis 3.14, he says, Because you have done this, serpent, you enemy of God, because you have done this, cursed are you. Now, you don't ever want God to say cursed to you. Cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that means you're going to be an enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is not about being afraid of snakes. This is not about that. This is about something way bigger than that. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Who's the seed of the woman? I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And he, who? The seed of the woman. Shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the hill. Very fascinating. Because in Genesis chapter 4 that comes after this. It traces the seed of the woman. From Eve and Adam, to Seth. And then Genesis 5 traces the seed of the woman from Seth to Noah. And then throughout the rest of Genesis, it traces the seed of the woman from Noah through Shem to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, and the rest of the Old Testament, it keeps following, and we keep seeing it introduced in these genealogies. You know those things that you hate to read in the Bible? It keeps tracing the seed of the woman all the way into the New Testament. Where you see a woman, Mary, a virgin. Oh, fascinating. When we think of the seed, we never say the seed of the woman if we're in ancient Hebrew. We always say the seed of the man. It's the seed of the man through which the child comes. The woman receives the seed. But in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see the seed of the woman. The woman conceived by the Holy Spirit, giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the Gospel. We see the cross the tree of life in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. The tree of life again in Revelation 21 and 22. And between those two trees, the tree of life and the tree of life is the tree of the cross. And on that cross, we see the wrath of On that cross, we see the holy wrath of a holy God. 
And on that cross, we see the love of God loving sinners. Loving sinners. It's the gospel. And the rest of the New Testament unpacks and applies the gospel to our lives. Jesus really is like what we said here. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that's what. Where are you going to find 66 books written by 40 people over 1,500 years that will tell you a story? That even begins to approach that story. Every time we open our Bibles, we need to open it seeing God revealing himself to us and redeeming us for himself. Next week, we're going to continue to talk about how to read the Bible for transformation. I've been trying to give you a framework of how to think about the Bible. Next week, I want you to begin to think about one of the reasons we sometimes read the Bible and it doesn't impact us is because we don't know how to prepare our hearts to read. We just read. But we don't read with a prepared heart. And so next week we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up and I'm going to close this out in prayer. And then kids, you're going to come. You're going to wave at Pastor Gary. Or if you're really crazy, you're going to sit with me out there in 111 degree heat and we'll eat lunch together. But uh, let me pray for us and I'll turn it over to the worship team. So let's pray. God, today we are so grateful. We are so grateful for the message of the cross. God, we want to worship you and we want to praise you because you are a holy God. You are holy and you are also gracious and merciful. And so you have sent for us the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the perfect revelation of you to us. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through the scriptures. And God, we thank you for speaking to us about the most important message we're ever going to hear. The message of the gospel. And God, I pray you'll help us to learn how to really read your word for transformation over the next couple of weeks. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.